This is a HeadGum Podcast. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Inside Voices. I'm Kevin T. Porter. My guest today is Lacey Mosley. Okay, a little background. Lacey is an actress. She is an improv comedian, not a stand-up comedian, although we'll talk about that later. And she hosts a podcast called Scam Goddess. She is the eponymous Scam Goddess. And it's a show in which her and a guest talk about scams, small-time cons. It's a true crime show you don't have to feel morally complicated about listening to because the victims are all still alive. Uh, for the most part. If they died, it was of natural causes. Lacey is a firecracker. She is a little stick of charisma dynamite that from one angle is very intimidating, but from another, truer angle is deeply sweet. And I really wanted to talk to her this week. So let's hear Lacey describe her own voice. This is actually a very hard question because I get shrill sometimes, but I get other stuff too. I think my voice changes. I think it's, I would say my voice is like... uh, What's a word for like, it's like malleable or like, uh, flexible or like, that's not even it. Like there's a word like for when you're like not code switching, but when you kind of like go in and out, cause sometimes I'm talking like this and the other times I'm talking like this, there's a specific word that I'm looking for that I can't think of. It's it's gonna like I'm just gonna fly out at me at some point during the show, and I'm just gonna randomly and that'll be what adjustable, pliable, <laughs> versatile, resilient, something like that. Yeah, versatile could work, or uh-huh. like you know when people, God, when they can just like change how they act and stuff, like depending on who they're with. I can't. Oh, it'll come to me, but we're close. <laughs> we'll go with versatile for now. Chameleon like, I mean, that might be yeah. closer. I feel like chameleon is it. Like, okay. that's the voice. Oh, the good Because right now it's like this. Mm-hmm. But you know, other times I'm talking like this. Mm-hmm. And like, <laughs> but it'll be all in the one one show. <laughs> right. It's not like you're almost something that happens depending on different audience members slash people you're talking to. But it, it's something that happens right. within the actual conversation. Yes. Because on my show, we do. I do a lot of... Uh, I, I tell everyone I'm not a journalist. That's a scam. I'm not a journalist, but we do. I do a lot of, you know, reading and editorializing. And so that's very much here. But then when I'm talking about my opinions, <laughs> it's like there. 
So it's almost like, and especially with podcast stuff, it's almost like a signal of like, don't worry, I'm not a professional. You don't need to, you know, hold me to a New York Times standard of integrity right. here. Yes. I am constantly telling people I am not a professional. We source everything. I have a research assistant, but I am not a professional. Yeah. No. And that, no, that, that's true that that is a scam, though. That's pretty prevalent in a lot of podcast stuff where it's like the difference between a, jur- a journalist and a guy with a microphone people don't quite understand as well these days. No. And they will like come for you. Mm-hmm. I have any every podcast there's people who are like correcting my pronunciations and sending me links and apparently I didn't know uh the difference between custard and frozen yogurt and bitches sent me charts. <laughs> I got a chart about how ice cream and frozen yogurt and custard and fro- like everything is different. Gelato, I learned a lot. I've been really educated. Uh-huh. That's terrific, though. That, that, that yeah, that line of communication is open with your voice stuff. Growing up, like where'd you grow up geographically? Frisco, Texas. So it's like North Dallas area. I feel like we're all like so much products of the people that surrounded us and like the cadences. I feel like if you diagrammed any sentence that I say, even in my adult life, I could tell you, oh yeah, that kind of word choice or that phrasing is from this person. And maybe that like cadence is from this woman and this like, what do you feel like the product? Like, what do you think the ingredients of the end product of your voice were when you were growing up? What were your influences with that stuff? Definitely my grandmother. Um, that's where we get like all this who child, you know, we living in our last days, child. I don't know when we gonna go. Jesus gonna come take us though. Um, and then I'd say big doomsday sayer. It sounds like your grandma. Oh yeah. My grandma was like depressed and I had no idea because black people weren't really like concerned with mental health until, you know, recent decades. So I, I had to realize that there were all these phrases that my grandma had that were really like about you know mental health and i had no idea she'd be like who child sit down you making my nerves bad and i'm like your nerves you got anxiety like, <laughs> like you're anxious it does make you wonder what the community will be like like a few generations into like therapy is accepted allowed that you can be conversant right. in things like anxiety and depression right and your children can have those conversations with you because we didn't have those conversations uh, a lot of times I didn't even realize but prayer was a form of meditation because you know I'd be really anxious and my grandma would be like well go on in there and just pray about it you need to get on your knees for a few minutes and talk to God and I was like oh this is your version of like meditation like closing your eyes talking to no one or thinking <laughs> <laughs> thinking you know to try to calm yourself down and then she was very anxious all the time. She was constantly talking about planning her funeral. And I was like, oh, Grandma, God. like, yeah. But it was, and, and, and then I didn't even realize how that came off on me and how I, like, I think about dying every single day. And I was like, well, you know, she gave me a lot of great things. And then also a little bit of, yeah. a, little bit of a little bit of internalized nice. trauma or nihilism, perhaps, yeah. well, along with the you whole know, package. hey, it, it, that comes hand in hand with being black. So, you know, usually you can dance good. Usually there's a lot of trauma also. It, you know, it balances out, though. You're saying the good dancing comes at a price. It, uh, a very heavy a hefty, one. heavy price, unfortunately. Who knew rhythm costs so much? Because, boy, oh boy, let me tell you, I've been out in these protests and... um. 
I really saw in LA that I was talking about this on Twitter that a lot of white people showed up to these protests in non POCs because every time we were trying to get the the chant going like Black Lives They Matter here, and then I just hear people clapping on the three and the one in the back, and it was like we cannot catch a beat, and I was like the white people are here. This is wonderful. There's so many that we cannot do rhythm anymore, and <laughs> it was amazing. The obliteration of of a unified rhythm is actually uh, speaking to a higher unity <laughs> that is more important. It was. I've never heard it more beautiful. I was like, there are so many people here who are not black and it's fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you grew up, if you're talking about the one and the three, so you know the two and the four of like growing up in a black church. It sounds like that yes. definitely, and especially with your grandmother, influenced the way you talk. You seem very conversant in the ability to go into like the fire and brimstone, the Pentecostal sort of cadences. Yes. And like the church, like, you know, we always had the pastor who was sweating a lot and he would be sweating on the mic <laughs> and talking like, you know what I mean? Talking like that and doing sermons like that. So yeah, there's a lot. Um, so grandma's one. Um, I'd say white cheerleaders uh, in Frisco, Texas is another one. I spent a lot of time with just like cheerleaders and like uh, there weren't a lot of black people in my school. So that was its own, you know, space where I found myself kind of coming in and out of language. Yeah. What'd you get from them, from the cheerleaders? I got a little bit of that valley cadence. I got a little that like, 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 like my sister loves to make fun of me. Um, she was like, this is my favorite, my parents' favorite bit. They'd be like, uh, Sydney, do lazy, do, do lazy how she be talking. And then my sister would be like, I thought I was flying American, but really I was flying Delta. And I was like, I do not talk <laughs> like that. And then I'm like, oh yeah, there it is. Okay. <laughs> it exists. When you were doing that, so you were a cheerleader yourself in high school? Yeah. In middle school. So yeah. w in doing that, was that something where you felt like you had to tamp down some of the church influence and become more, like, was that one of your, like, formative code switching moments, like, being conversant with the cheerleaders? For sure. Um, definitely a, a big code switching moment. Um, just because you're around so many people who talk like how I'm talking now, which I think that it's like always carried with me throughout my life. It just, it feels disarming to a lot of people because sometimes if you are speaking, you know, the way that I will speak, you know, when I'm talking about stuff that I'm passionate about or people getting on my nerves and shit, like people just assume that you're stupid. And so I've always had to like warm people up with like, oh, here is my elocution. And then also I'm still black. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. one of those things that like, unfortunately, probably became shorthand in a lot of media and culture in the sense of. Even for like a white person, a real shortcut to, oh, this person's kind of dumb is give him a Southern accent. You know, like if right. it's a sketch and like this guy's a dumb idiot, well, make him like a farmer or something like that. So in the same way, there is such loaded cultural context for what people would call like black voice or something like that. Exactly. Black scent. There's a word for it. Black scent. I mean, we saw with no shade, child, but we saw with, you know, Aquafina, child. She used to just be a straight up Negro from Queens. <laughs> and then and then all of a sudden, honey was out here getting Emmys. And she was like, well, I would just like to say, <laughs> like, what happened? That was what one of those things. I know, like seeing Crazy Rich Asians and it was like. I think this is Miley Cyrus, but then Miley Cyrus is actually doing like a lot of appropriating herself. So like the photocopy progression was very interesting. Like, yeah, you're right. right that there was, it seemed like the press tour for the farewell. There was a marked 
difference in how she it presented. It was incredibly different. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Miley Cyrus does that too. One of my favorite Miley Cyrus clips to this day is her walking out on stage. She had to be on something. She was like, they tried to kill your favorite bitch. <laughs> <laughs> they tried to kill me. <laughs> I said, who is on stage right now? <laughs> <laughs> but also it's hilarious. And I thought it, I found it funny. So <laughs> yeah. So I told my mom when I was five that I wanted to be an actress and um, she went and got me headshots and then enrolled me in whatever scam program I wanted to do as long as I was getting good grades. So, honey, like, I, you know, the best acting scams happened at the mall, child. So I was at John Robert Powers, you know, by the fountain <laughs> at the, you know, <laughs> at the uh, Glendale Mall, or not Glendale, that's in uh, here, the Galleria Mall in Texas. You know, trying to become a star tomorrow. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And that was, you know, all those things are big scams. But my mom kind of told me, she was like, I want you to be able to pursue your life. But I also have my own. And like, I can't be living out of my car in L.A. trying to get you to become an acting star. She was like, I also just think the industry is pretty seedy for children. And she was like, I want you to get an education. And if you still want to pursue this as an adult, you can. But then she always let me take classes extracurricularly, like throughout my youth. So there was a lot of speech training. I have always taken voice lessons. Um, you know, there's a lot. For for education. what in particular? Were there like things that you were working on with that, with the training and the voice lessons? So I remember when I did Sweeney Todd in college, there was like, we just had to go to voice lessons from a, um, what are they called? Um, like a vocal coach? Vocal co- yeah, but it's like a dialect coach, I oh, guess. Dialect. So okay, yeah. we, yeah, we would have to go learn how to, you know, speak in the front of your mouth. So where, like, where, where does this accent land? Is like, are you poorer? And then it's like a little more gritty, like, like whatever that is. So a lot of that in college, and then voice lessons my whole life for singing, and specifically, yeah. or just general performance stuff for singing. Did they work? Because the I, I took some singing voice lessons semi-recently i was taking them a bunch last year <laughs> and then it just became face. it well it became it became so discouraging over a long period of time she she told me like that my speaking voice was wrong like even the way i'm talking to you right now she was like oh you're you're talking too low you should be up here but i didn't know how to be up here without it sounding like i was yelling so it was like a real struggle to try to like adjust that she's like your center voice and she would pluck it out on a piano like it's like a middle c or a middle d or something like that so mm-hmm. it was it was kind of a bummer uh, because it yeah it ended that's up. bizarre because it feels like she was trying to like change what's already there like your speak like yeah I guess we all should be a center C but it would be very bizarre to try to talk in a different tone all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not natural <laughs> with singing stuff though because it's like I don't know how much you sing now for your job so like was the aim for that stuff just like needing to be well-rounded for musical theater stuff and be able to audition for whatever you needed to or wanted to because I know some people look at singing as like oh it's just a life skill I want to have like painting or something right which I can appreciate both sides um intentionally in the beginning it was because I physically am capable of singing um and I was like, well, I might as well have this in my arsenal and it might as well be something that's polished. And I moved to New York before I moved to Los Angeles. So I was realizing that it was probably going to be quite necessary for me to build a songbook. 
So I built, and um, for those of you who aren't familiar with musical theater, uh, musical theater artists have a book of songs and sheet music that they've cut specifically 16 bars or whatever, um, 32 bars, like whatever they're going to allow you to sing in your audition. So you just have that book of music and you practice it all the time recreationally. And then when an audition comes up, uh, specifically whatever they're asking for, like mezzo soprano, soprano, if they're asking for alto, tenor, whatever, you have songs in your book that should cater to different emotions and to different uh, potential musicals that you would work in. And so you come in, you know, if it's ingenue, then I would probably do um, once in this uh, once, I think, is it called Once on this Island? I think. Um, yeah. And there's a song called Waiting for Life. Um, and that was in my book. It's like a song for like a young girl, a stranger in white in a car. And like, you know, it's very young. And so, yeah. So I, I had to build a book. Yeah. I had no idea you were this entrenched in musical theater stuff. I thought it was just acting stuff. So you were yeah. like, were you a different kind of like, quote unquote, musical theater kid from like, did you see Rent when it came out and theaters, like all that stuff? Or was it just a necessary evil? I don't know. I guess I, I, I just did not take you for a musical theater kid. Because yeah, I'm not. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm obviously like I was in Sweeney Todd. So I, Sweeney Todd is honestly a place where I learned that I didn't even know my own voice. Uh, my whole life, I thought that I was an alto. And then when we were doing like Sweeney um, at my my college, which was a repertory theater at the time, so it was a pretty intense program, um, we couldn't even be leads because they would hire professional actors who were in the union to do most lead roles. So we were like always scrambling to try to get like a supporting. And um, we had a vocal, one of our vocal coaches was in and he was like, okay, we need somebody to sing these B flats. Like, you know, the very top of the Sweeney that's like, Sweeney, yeah, all that. Um, I can't do it right now, obviously. But they were like, we need somebody to do it. And I was like, well, I'm an alto. And they were like, no, you're not. And I was like, yes, I am. And then he was like, come to the piano. And then he just started playing up the scale, up the scale, till he got to pretty much the top. And I was still going. And I was like, oh, I, I had no idea I could sing that. <laughs> yeah, but I never was like, oh, I got to see every musical when it comes out. Like, I have friends like that, but I'm not like hardcore. Uh, the last musical I saw was The Color Purple with Cynthia Revo, though, and that was a fantastic experience. We were sobbing in the theater. But I, I started doing musical theater because uh, I was in New York, and that was really the bread and butter of the city. Like, they they do have, obviously, some television, but it's mostly procedurals, which I did that, too. The only extra job I ever did in my life was on Law & Order uh, with iced tea and it was crazy because they run that show so well that you're in and out so fast and you still get paid for your day rate I had no idea how to be an actor so I did everything I tried everything and I had one guy who I'll never forget who was a working actor who you probably wouldn't know his name but you would know his face his name is Jacinto and he was from uh the church that I had been going to and he sat down and had coffee with me and he taught me how to be an actor and it's one of the things that I'll never ever forget because it was the kindest thing he didn't have to do that he wasn't a weirdo he wasn't hitting on me um he was like there's certain routes he was like you can go regional theater you can go musical theater 
You can work to get your equity card and, you know, perform at local playhouses. He was like, you can go stand up. You can go to an improv theater like a UCB or a um, at the time I was in New York. So it was like the pit and um, those places or groundlings if I wanted to move to L.A. So then I took that and I was like, OK, I'm going to go try all of these things. And like, we're going to see what works. So I went to open calls for uh Motown, honey. You know those freaking. Oh, yeah. They're all just. It's just a press junket where they're like just Negroes out in the street, like dancing in the street. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And I got a call back from that, but I realized I was like, this is not a real avenue. And then I performed. Just I would get on backstage and I would go on auditions on backstage, which is real hit or miss. Um, <laughs> mostly miss. I did a, a, a play that a unhinged woman wrote uh, called Lolly and Brownie Go to Hollywood, where I played a hooker in a blonde wig named Lolly. And uh, it's probably better you pit. were Lolly than the other one. <laughs> she was black, but yes, I would not want to be Brownie. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. So then you got to UCB through this stuff too, right? I would imagine. Yeah, I did stand up. And then I got to UCB because stand up was like that was an interesting place finding my voice because uh, how you deliver jokes, especially when you're a woman. And even though the quarantine has taken away most of my aesthetics, like I was young and very pretty. And so people didn't want to hear me talk. So I had to come at it from a different angle. Like I couldn't come in like high energy, like, hi, this is me. Like like when I would do stand up the jokes would kind of come in lower. They would come in like this and I would talk really monotone and then I would like drop a joke. You had like, a Hedbergian rhythm <laughs> to it just to contrast yeah. with how you presented. Like this was a joke I would do. Like I was like, guys, I um, you know, I'm just like, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm depressed or I'm rich. I've just been ordering like a lot of Postmates. I've been trying to do self-care, you know, taking a bath with a glass of wine, masturbating to videos of soldiers coming home, you know, the regular. Um, <laughs> like, My Lord. That's so not you, right? That's- no, but it would surprise people because they'd be like, she's talking about masturbating to soldier videos. <laughs> like, and they'd be like, oh, okay yeah so unfortunately i think that is that a category on pornhub though uh for real <laughs> i would have met when if it's not it probably is now unfortunately it definitely is <laughs> but that's so yeah. funny that I was like, like it's- that that is so because the idea of you doing stand because i didn't know about any of that stuff but just thinking about kind of what your comedic persona is now if you want to call it that or just how i know you with the stuff on scam goddess like where there are like kind of bits of monologuing from you and it's like right. the guests could be there and they they could also not be there it'd still be a show <laughs> but it seems like oh yeah that is stand-up context i can fully see but then doing the other thing that's probably it just it just wouldn't be as enjoyable i would imagine for you right and and i've now i have a little bit more confidence in the fact that um Cause like the way like that's a current joke. I botched it completely, but that's a current joke. But I would deliver it as myself now. But back in the day, like I was twenty, I was beautiful. I'm still pretty, but like I was, I was, you, you know, I, was, I, I just knew I was like, <laughs> I'm very beautiful. But I was just, I just realized, like you know, when you look at pictures, and you're like, damn, I was hot. <laughs> whoa, I mean, I'm still cute. I'm still out here. We still popping, but whoa, mm-hmm. I was a bad mm-hmm. bitch. You never know when you're real young how bad you are. Um, <laughs> 
So I would wear turtlenecks to stand up and stuff because I didn't want people to sexualize me because they wouldn't listen to me. Um, and then that's when I started doing improv because it felt like church camp. It wasn't like dark bars with seedy dudes being like, I hope you're funnier than you are pretty. And I'm like, was that supposed to be a compliment? Please get away from me, man. Yeah. Like- I mean, there's there's definitely pervasive sexism and improv stuff. But for the most part, most of the men there are not alpha. They're very scared. <laughs> they're very, yeah, they're very beta. compliant and beta. <laughs> yes, it's probably the worst. And I love a beta Mm. i would imagine (laughs) why do you think we're friends still (laughs) (laughs) after all this time kevin i don't know i feel like you masquerade as beta and you do it very well that would be so (laughs) evil if that were actually the case but you know no that's not evil (laughs) i mean you can be approachable and alpha i think you can be i i haven't figured out how but i've met some very approachable like just like so kind and warm alphas it's not me though i think Um, you're wait you don't think you're an approachable alpha or you think you're approachable but not an alpha I think that I'm not an approachable alpha. I'm an alpha, but I'm not really approachable. I've tried. I I was like, I'll smile more. (laughs) (laughs) I find you fairly approachable, but maybe because I know you a little bit. I don't know. I mean, but I find you fairly approachable. That's because you're not easily intimidated, Kevin. (laughs) With the secret alpha stuff, you mean? I feel like I'm very easily intimidated. Here's what it is, though. I I find that I'm more intimidated by men than women, for sure. Mm. women mm. and i'm intimidated just, by a great deal of women but men for the most part i feel like i have like weird big brother energy or baggage with that stuff uh but women i feel like no i can i can fully embrace this situation in a way that feels safe to me and safe to them and i don't have to worry about like impressing anyone if that makes sense because i don't want to impress anybody I, I get what you're saying i have when i first moved to la i really did feel this kind of weird need to impress people um i would go to parties and everyone would be like what are you working on and it's like why is this the top we are at a party like there are people twerking in the corner why i gotta talk about my imdb like why is this how we are here but you know and then i'd be like oh i'm working on this i'm working on that and i really just felt this need to prove that i was valuable and worthy of being around these people and now i don't give a fuck right um but there are some people that i've met that are quite intimidating to me and for some reason i gravitate towards them if i ever meet someone who's like genuine like not warm when i meet them i'm like maybe i like you because you want to win them (laughs) over right yeah i want to know why you feel like you don't have to be warm to people because like what are you hiding is there is there something good over there not all now sometimes there ain't nothing good over there. yeah i was gonna ask if you've been ever successful (laughs) in this endeavor and then found out no just kidding um i think there's two types because uh, especially in LA, I've met people who are standoffish and kind of rude because they're insecure and they need to feel like they're making people feel inferior so that they can feel superior. That helps them. But then I've also met people who are just trying to protect their energy. So there are two types. So I think I'm really attracted to the ones who are trying to protect their energy because I've met people who like we ran into each other backstage at a show and they were just kind of like, you know, to themselves and maybe they were famous or whatever. But then I worked on a job with them and they were like the nicest people I had ever came in contact with. And I used to be like, well, I'm nice to everybody. And then I had some bad stuff happen to me from just being nice to random people. And I was like, oh, I get it. This is why you guys don't do this. Okay. (laughs) Like I'm still nice to people, but I don't let people get too close before I know if they're like, stable mentally yeah, because your relationship capacity and your emotional energy is not a renewable resource oftentimes there's a finite exactly amount of it. so you learn how to protect yourself with that
Let's take a break from Lacey's chameleon voice, and we'll be right back with more Inside Voices. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. How annoying is it to get the... What's it like having the black experience in a white experience space question now? Like, what what is the best way for you to think about that stuff for yourself? Because I think about improv for you. And I think about places like UCB that are so white male dominated. Yeah. And podcast space that is so white male dominated. The top of the, the, top of the charts is like Joe Rogan, Marin, those sorts of people. And so to be in right. those spaces... What's the best way for you to think about it? Because oftentimes the answer to this sort of question is, I don't even want it to be a question. Or there is like a more specific, I feel X, Y, Z responsibility. But everyone has a different approach to it. Um, I think I'm more of the, I'm going to carve out the space for myself. Uh, at UCB, I was really fortunate to be able to create a lot of black spaces, some of which exist today, um, and not in a way that felt performative, because it, blackness is sometimes a trap because of how we're seen versus who we are. And people want us to show up and be diverse and, you know, do that black thing so we can watch and and, and learn and observe as if we're some kind of fucking zoo. And uh, my podcast isn't specifically about black issues, but it is by a black woman. And I do talk about black issues on the show as they relate to the context of the scams that we're going over and whatever. But that was interesting because no one knew how to brand us i was spotify pick of the year and we were in the business section <laughs> and then when we what kind of when business we got a webby, would that be <laughs> the business of robbery i guess I'm, but truly you got a webby for the show <laughs> yeah a webby for the show and we were in true crime and true crime we're more true con we don't really deal with murder we're not quite true crime so it's funny watching people be like okay well this isn't like an ethnic like they're not talking about stuff like the read where it's mostly about black issues but it is mostly black people and ah we don't know you know because it's not we're not framing ourselves to just i don't want to say just be a black show because there's nothing wrong with just being a black show but we uh, we're doing a lot of things and we also just happen to be black so i think that was a big thing for me is like i want to show you guys what i think but also still through my cultural lens so it's kind of like a twofer and we did that at UCB too. I used to run a show called Trap Prov 
And it was a live DJ, a band, 12 of the most insane comedians that we could find. Um, we would hand out limeritas and free weed. This is L.A. Um, <laughs> and, and we had... Um, but we would purposely go out and recruit at black parties and black functions because this is still at UCB, but we wanted a black audience. And a lot of times when we would put on black shows at UCB, the audience would still be white. And then it's like, I can't do a hotep joke to 150 white people. They're not going to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I get that. So you've always had yeah. to like, yeah, instead of sort of your initial experiences, like with the white cheerleaders in Texas, you're not as much trying to do that anymore as much as trying to feel empowered enough to be like, no, this is what it's going to be and you can take it or leave it. And I don't have to speak like you or do the things that you have deemed acceptable to do what I want. Right, And some of that is just culturally, I was raised there. So it's not for me switching. Like a lot of times people would be like, oh, it sounds really fake. Like you should just talk one way all the time. But it's like, no, I'm a chameleon. This is how I talk. This is how I relate to people. This is how I emphasize my points. This is who I am. That doesn't change. But when you talk to customer service uh, reps on the phone, what do you choose? Ooh. Because <laughs> um, that's loaded, right? I, right. I go for uh, docile yet threatening white woman. Oh, that's good. I, I, I yeah, I get right in, into my um my Karen bag. Yeah, chaotic I, evil. Not Karen. Karen. Karen's Karen's evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, Karen's like too angry. Okay. I go for um, I would say I'm going more for Becky, A Becky. on the phone with customer An angry service. Becky. Yeah. I get that. Yeah, that would work. <laughs> A hurt Becky. A hurt. <laughs> okay. I'm like yeah. AT You hurt me. Yeah. You hurt oh, me. So, so yes, 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 no. We'll make it right. We'll go. You'll see a credit on your statement next month. I promise. Yeah. See, it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's easier. I, that's also my go-to argument tactic. With uh, sometimes crazy scammers reach out on Twitter and try to fight with me. And if it is a white woman, my tactic with arguing with white women is always I'm going to point out the things that you're doing. I'm not going to escalate this. I'm not going to insult you. I'm just going to say facts, and I'm not going to let you turn me into the big bad wolf because a lot of times uh unfortunately with and this is not all white women i know child but a lot of them though especially with people of color and black people they will weaponize their fragility but they will also attack you so it's like throw the rock hide the hand so like Mm. hit them first and then cry because you're scared so it's a i have to be very careful with my voice in those instances um so as not to become the aggressor in a situation where i'm being targeted um and that's in real life as well where it's kind of like I always have to like I can't let the emotions get the best of me if I want to win against someone who has a little bit more privilege and power than I do in a situation. And you do want to win. So yeah. I I need to win. Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm understanding from this conversation. So I said uh winning is better than sex cuz uh winning lasts forever. Hey, wow. What a statement. That actually makes quarantine easier for me uh to hear that. <laughs> but Something I think about and I'm thinking about a lot this week is the sort of burden on a certain sort of friend or performer that is kind of what you were describing when you were talking about carving out the space in the sense of if you're the only person in someone's contacts where it's like, oh, Lacey's black. She would be a good guest for XYZ or like. Or, you know, Carl Tar. oh, Carl would be funny for this, blah, blah, blah. And then it, like, kind of ends there a lot of times, like, with whoever it is. I always wonder about, like, kind of the burden on, and especially now that brands, shows, 
but just kind of like there's going to be a burden right now for black people to do all sorts of free labor to speak to a moment to teach activism and so I can listen and be like okay I'm taking notes and doing that sort of thing so I wonder how you create the boundary for that to not be tokenized or exploited for that sort of thing um in some extent you can't and we I think a lot of us deal with that I mean I've gotten to the point where I'm not educating people. Like, like I said on Twitter, um, if you can Google how to make focaccia bread, you can look how you can Google how to help Black lives. Like, you're not asking me how to make your sourdough prep, <laughs> so don't ask me how to help Black people because that's also online. Mm-hmm. It's also there. Um, but with the tokenizing thing, like you were saying, like I mean, I perform in predominantly white spaces, and uh, it, that has given me access to things that. I probably would not have had otherwise, but at the same time, it is exhausting because oftentimes white people don't understand that no black person wants to be on a lineup, especially in something collaborative like improv, as the only black person. Because then it's like, okay, I'm here, but I have to play with your references. I have to talk about Star Wars, and I have to talk about, you know... (laughs) I mean, like, whatever the fuck y'all are into, because I have to have the references of white people because they domineer the space, whereas white people get this luxury to ignore us unless it's something that they want to appropriate and steal money from. Um, So that leaves us, you know, having to hide a whole set of tools and a whole comedy skill set because no one's going to understand what we're talking about. Um, I've talked to people who book shows and I was like, two at a time, like Noah's Ark. Don't bring me out here by myself as the lone Negro. It still happens. Uh, but when it happens now, I take the opportunity to make everyone uncomfortable and I do it in every single show and it is funny to me. And by that, I mean like, <laughs> there was some show I did and it was like a bunch of white dudes and they, uh, I somehow we got on the suggestion of like, we're a hockey team and the puck. And I was like, y'all need to stop hitting that black puck like that and left it. <laughs> and they were like trying to get me to join this scene. And I was like, <laughs> nope nope uh, oh, man. now you deal with it <laughs> like that's why i did it because i'm like yeah you i'm going to do this to you i've done shows where i'm like fully talking about solange and making the whole scene about it and it's funny but only three people who are black in the audience get it and i'm like nope we're gonna talk about solange this is what y'all get yeah no <laughs> like, that makes sense and i wonder too even from the time that you started to now if the reception has changed or if there is more of a veneer of like politeness or accommodation now that does happen when people are called out for like systemic indifferences of like why am I the only one here or like why why am I the only one you call when you need someone for whatever the show may be I almost named specific shows but I'm not going to (laughs) I know I'm like so close to doing it but I'm like I'm not going to I know I know but 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 yes like, <laughs> yeah you're exa- you're exactly right and we'll have people come out and play black people on stage like i've we've pimped people into doing ridic- like white men and white women into doing ridiculous stuff just because we're like we're not gonna just be up here and do the black stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna be here <laughs> and i think after a while they start to realize <laughs> i know i just especially with the ucb stuff or uh, what's left of UCB after all this? I like. I just don't know how you correct that stuff over time. We've talked about it. Um, I've talked about the importance of 
representation in the audience as well. Like if I'm ever putting on a show, I'm also, I'm not just promoting at UCB. I'm not just promoting at their shows. I'm going into black neighborhoods. I'm going to black parties. I'm going to black functions because I want that audience to be balanced enough that everyone feels comfortable being themselves. Cause I've seen so many black shows where it's like, yeah, your show is entirely black. Your audience is entirely white. No one knows who Dr. Umar is. You can't make that reference. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can attest for that. I don't know who Dr. Umar is, unfortunately. <laughs> and Dr. Umar is popping in black culture. He is our problematic icon. Look up Dr. Umar after this, Kevin. I'm going to send you Dr. Umar out of context. I can't He's wait. just a crazy man. He's not a good guy. He's a misogynist. Um, he's a hotep for sure. But he just says things that are so funny because he's so serious about it. Mm-hmm. He's fantastic. <laughs> uh, is he a scammer? Absolutely. Uh, he does posts where he chastises people if they don't give enough. He's like, gifts. We need to be giving gifts. Now, I saw the little $20 you sent, but that is not enough, Angela. And he will, like, direct it at people who oh, donated wow. money to him. Okay. <laughs> crazy. I can't, I can't wait for this. Yeah. My, my favorite scammer <laughs> yeah. growing up was Miss Cleo. That was, that was a big touchstone oh. for me. <laughs> Call me for your queen. free reading. Yeah. I hope she's doing okay. Call wherever. me now. Yes. <laughs> She's dead. Oh. Um, but she was, yeah, I keep up with Miss Cleo. <laughs> yeah, still from the grave. That's awesome. So scam goddess, why Why scams? Why was it that? I've fallen into a lot of stuff and realized I was interested in it much later. So I didn't even call, like, um, I'm not the person who named myself scam goddess. That's uh, Miles Gray, who does a podcast called The Daily Zeitgeist. Um yeah, on iHeart. And I have been doing that show since it started. And um, because me, a few other comedians had come in and auditioned basically for a job on the show. Thank God it didn't work out because I could never do a daily show. Um, it just would never work with my schedule. But I love to go on and Moonlight. I love those guys so much. They're such wonderful people there. And we would get on the show. And oftentimes when I was there, if there was a story about scams or if there's something about scams, I was like regaling it, you know, to the audience and like would be really passionate and interested. And then somewhere along the way, Miles was like, you know, you like really love scams. You're like the scam goddess. And I was like, oh, I like like the sound of that. And I was like, I really do love this stuff. And then it just happened. And doing a show like that for, much like UCB, a podcast network like Earwolf that isn't necessarily known for black talent, like pitching <laughs> it. I mean, truly, unless There's it like is. There's like four of us. Yeah. Is there four of us? Well, we got Sean. Nicole Byer. We got Byer and, and Sashir. We got, you know. And then LaVar Burton. And then the black people dead ass. Yes. They, they're, the, they're the blackest. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but for that, it's like, what what is the difference that you experience? Or maybe you don't know the difference because you, you, you don't know the white experience. But like, so p- <laughs> pitching that and, and taking a chance on you, which like, to me, a network doing a show with someone like you, who is not a celebrity doing a recap of a sitcom they used to be on or something. Right. Someone who compared- You throw it all the shade. I, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't even say it's shade. I know who you talk about. As much as it's- uh, You're like, these are facts. All out attack. <laughs> but for- like, Conan needs a friend. Sure. All ladies. I'll say them. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. Well, what I find striking about that whole period is like when all those shows were getting started and it was capitalizing on- white celebrity i mean and lavar yeah. is a celebrity too but like to take a chance on someone like you who is not a celebrity in that sense quite yet but 
uh, on someone like you to like put it in the roster, it did strike me as such a nice bet on your talent rather than on the name. Well, I'm a business person. Yeah. How do you mean? So I don't necessarily think <laughs> I don't necessarily think it was a bet on my talent. I came in with the pitch. Um, we recorded the pilot beforehand, um, and so I wrote and did the research on the pilot. Um, it was actually about McMillions, um, the original pilot, which is fantastic. Except for I thought that Jerome Jacobson was black the whole time, and he was not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the documentary was a shock to you. <laughs> We actually ended up re-recording it with Paul Shear, but I'm like, if we ever pull that out of the archives, I want people to know that I thought he was black and I made a huge mistake, (laughs) but (laughs) truly didn't know. Um, But so I came with that um, and I came with all the television shows I've ever done, the series regular that I do on Florida Girls, which is on the most random network in the fucking world, but still on TV. And then every podcast that I ever done, every, you know, the followers that I had had from all the moonlighting that I'd been doing consistently for so long. Like I kind of just came with a whole package and was like, look, I have a marketing degree. I am an entertainer. I do this. The show will be profitable. Like, let's get to work. And Colin, um, thank God for him, Colin Anderson, he really believed in the show. And yeah, this was at a time where every other show besides mine that was getting greenlit was like, uh, you know, Conan O'Brien and The Office Ladies. And I, my rollouts were at the same time virtually as theirs. Not Conan's, but The Office Ladies especially. Um but there were a lot of celeb podcasts coming out at the time. Um, and we were in, I was just, yeah. So I got put on the board with all the other celebs and it was just like me. Like, so, but shout out to them for believing in what we were doing. But I also, you know, I didn't come in like, I'm an artist and I hope you take a chance. I was like, look, I'm an artist, but I'm a business person and I can deliver on these numbers. And if I can't, we'll move on. Um, Why do you want yeah, to do a so. podcast as opposed to something else? Because it, that was also by accident. I never was interested in podcasting. Um, a girl named Anna Hosnier came to an improv show and was like, come audition for this podcast. And that's when I started doing, I was like, oh, this is fun. You just talk and I'd be funny on a microphone, I guess. Um, and then I realized it was another stream of income and it was a way to reach people directly and also to commune with uh, fans in a way that I never really had been able to do. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, oh, I really like this. And it's just one of those things. I remember the Derek comedy guys talking about this with like when they first put out their videos, when YouTube was like less than a year old, it was one of those things that just kind of existed as an evergreen calling card where it's like, it's doing work. Like people are listening to your show and coming to it passively. Like you're promoting it every week, but it's just like laying there for people to discover. And it feels current, even if it's like literally not, or it's something you recorded six months ago. Yeah. So we definitely went for evergreen because of that yeah that's good uh what do you think you know about podcasting now that you didn't know when you started i mean i learned quite a bit from you when i sat down with you um yeah yeah yeah, to do your other show yeah we talked remember for a good bit before we started and i had questions about people reaching out to me about stuff and like how to deal with certain aspects of the business um and so that was really helpful some of it i can't say on the air sure sure but but, um especially now because I'm starting to do more celebrity interviews on our show and like people who have their publicist on the Zoom with us. And it's very much like I have an hour and it's not like 
uh, our podcast has always been structured but you know if people wanted to like push the segments a little bit I didn't mind but now it's like I have to constantly be aware of how valuable my time is and and how little of it I have to get shit done sometimes um and just producing a quality product every week because that is I don't want people to feel like oh it's fallen off or it's not as good as it used to be whereas there are podcasts that I listen to that have fallen off for like maybe six months where it was just like they were super depressed but I kept listening because I loved them (laughs) but I can't I don't feel like I can do that um so I'm very much aware of like when we were talking when I came to do your show and I was supposed to do it earlier this week and I was like I I don't feel like I can give you my best and I'm very much aware of that yeah so there is like you do feel a responsibility to not fail even in a medium where it it does feel like you were talking about the six month stretch of people who were depressed still (laughs) making the show there's something that like the every week of it all does make it feel a little more disposable than a 10 episode season on television or an album that comes out once every three years from this artist where it's like okay well your batting average can be whatever you want it to be and you want yours to be really high even though you get an at bat every week yeah. And I mean, like, those are the people I can't say their names because I love their podcast so much. But when I'm telling you, like, for six months, they're like, I don't even want to be here. <laughs> like, they would be on the mic. Yeah. <laughs> They'd be on the mic, like, oh, I don't want to do this. <sighs> like, I'm like, <laughs> and I'd just be listening, like, mm-hmm. yeah. No, and well, and that can, and then- <laughs> that can make people feel so foolish when it's like, uh, when, when you're the person who's tuning in and listening. And the person yeah. making the thing for you is like, this sucks for me. So I'm sure that is like so corrective and instructive in a way for how you treat the congregation for your show. Yeah. And listening taught me a lot because like being a fan of a podcast and seeing my own dedication to something, even if they're like, we hate y'all, you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm sorry. Like, and I'm still listening. <laughs> So you have fans like that. And then you have fans who are like, if this isn't, you know, cutting it every week, then I'm out. So it's like, I kind of want to keep them all. Fortunately, on my podcast, there's a little little bit of a cushion that I built in, which I didn't even know that I did. And it feels a little evil to say, but sometimes like if an episode is like, isn't as good as others, like the fans just blame the guest. I mean, but do you think that's actually what's the case? Because that does happen. You get a dead guest that can bring it down. I'm saying not literally you. I'm saying second person. Yeah. Like that can happen on the show. Yeah, but I find that if it is a dead guest situation, it's a combination of me not being on. Because like you said earlier, like I'll be on there monologuing. So if I'm on, it don't matter if you're not on. Right. No, that's true. (laughs) So So if that deadly combo happens of like dead guest and I'm also just low energy then i'm like oh fuck that's on me but the but the crowd will be like don't bring them back (laughs) (laughs) i know what that's like though because i feel like although i don't quite know what it's like because in those scenarios i usually have a co-host where i can be like like and be on the side with them doing our own thing it's like you can come into this if you want to but no obligation it'd be better if you did this is truly like the show we're doing right now is the first time it's just been me and the other person every time. So thankfully. How does that make you feel? How does, how's this been for you? Doing this show? Uh, well, it just makes it feel, I, I feel a little more responsible to be like, ah! I mean, I feel like I've really tried to curate the booking. So it's only people I truly like, like a lot and, and love and have friendships or relationships with in most cases. So it's like, that's the insurance to it rather than like, 
it's been very rare that doing this show has been like a first date or something. Like it can be, mm. and sometimes first get, dates go really well. Like our first date went when you did the other show. It was so good. Yeah. I loved it. And sometimes they can go really poorly. But that was the thing, weirdly, like that's the training wheels I've put on this show of like, I only want to talk to people that I know are great. Rather than like, and that's smart. maybe they're great. And I mean, too, I mean, there's also like the proof of concept of like their whole show where it's like, you know, what makes a good guest and you know, what kind of irritates you when a guest isn't there to play. So, yeah, you know, how to and do also this. there's a balance of people who play too much. Like, I know I talk a lot, but there's people who just really love the sound of their own voice. And I'm like, if you're not saying anything entertaining, I need you to keep the refrain for like 15 seconds long. <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. Like, don't give me 45 seconds of no comedy, no take. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, no, it's really I, specific. It's a light touch with a lot of people. And there, there can yeah. be wrecking balls. Absolutely. And and that's a weird thing with Earwolf, like you were talking earlier. Well, not just with Earwolf, any studio. Um, when they're sending people to you, sometimes they'll be like, oh, we got this cop who used to bust scammers. And I was like, I'm black. We will never have a police officer on this show. <laughs> Don't send me this no more. <laughs> yeah, I think you even said something to that extent I saw on Twitter or something when they were like, would you have yeah, this person? Yeah, my producer. Sh- oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were cackling when we got that email cackling we were like are y'all crazy Weez is negroes remember (laughs) we were supposed to like right before this was like beginning of march we were supposed to record one yes it didn't happen i can't believe it it sucks well now it can we're back up and running finally um well we can talk about that after the show but great now we can but (laughs) yeah no there was there's been things like that where i'm like no this person wouldn't be great or they'll pitch me like just people that I'm like, y'all don't know what we do over here, do mm-hmm. you? Like, Are you sick of scams now, though? Like, after doing X amount of episodes? I mean, it's been less than a year, right? Yeah. No. Not at all. It has been less than a year. But no, I'm not tired of scams at all. Because they're all so different. There's so many different industries. And personally, I don't... And I don't know if people know this. I've said it on Twitter. But I don't read the research until I'm doing the show. Oh, so that's like a, that's a different angle to it then. So then you're not at all posturing yourself as an expert on anything. It's discovery no. with the guests. I have a very trusting relationship with my research assistant. I yeah. will skim. I also do send her all the leads. So mm-hmm. I do know at least from what I've read from one article or from the lead, what's happening and what's going on. And I know that I'm intrigued by it, yeah. but she'll go, go get me like all these little details that I've never seen and heard of. And so it's like doing live improv on so many fun details. I love it. But sometimes it does backfire not knowing. Cause we did an episode on Joe Perlman uh, who was the Backstreet Boys producer who like robbed them blind. Um, and we got towards the end of the episode. And I was like, you know what? If I see him in the streets, it's on and popping. I do not fuck was with he you, dead? Mr. Perlman. Was he dead? Lou Perlman. Yeah, and he was dead. And we was like, <laughs> oh my God, Lou dead. <laughs> when they kill Lou. <laughs> and it was just like laughing for 30 seconds. I'm like, he dead. <laughs> I had no idea. Well, you know, justice was served ultimately, I guess, in, in some case. Yeah. Then also I feel like it makes my audience get to feel like we're all on this journey together. And like when you're listening at home, it's like that. You've seen that picture where it's like this is how I feel listening to podcasts. And it's like a guy. Yeah. <laughs> eating ice cream next to a picture of people eating ice cream. And I want it to feel like that. What I think it totally does. Like as a listener of the show, I think it fully does. Well, and the the, the thing I was going to say is just like scams as scams as a genre and as a format for a show, I think is such a 
interesting next move for some podcast stuff as like morally acceptable true crime because we've seen the like and it continues to thrive but we've definitely seen comedy shows about dead women and the people who kill them thrive we've seen like fictional takes on that or mini series from the la times about serial killers or like bad doctors and this feels like a because of oftentimes the the minimal human life collateral damage of scammery it feels like a safe and healthy way to engage with that stuff rather than like oh i'm complicit in like the monetization of someone's grief it's like you're complicit in a you know i guess giggling about a scam but no one's dead most of the time unless they're looper yeah most of the time yeah. yes and there's a looper of it <laughs> yeah. but yeah you're right and there's also like we it's weird if you listen to the show and someone just wrote an article about it that I really felt so seen where it was like we are chastising scammers we are chastising people who rob other people but at the same time we're chastising capitalism and there's certain scams that are being run like on a bank or when you try to sell a fake airport that I'm like I fucking love this I hate none of it I'm glad you did it I hope you got away with millions (laughs) Um, but then at the beginning we're always warning our listeners too about everyday scams that are happening I just had a text message come through my phone last night that was like, hey, love, we need you to, first of all, love, (laughs) like, how are you going to be from a government institution and you talking about love? So it said, oh no, it says, hi, dear, PayPal. Someone has tried to log into your PayPal account. If this is not you, please confirm your identity. Please log in and then send me a link. I got that yesterday. So I'm constantly warning people about like, like, first of all, when is PayPal talking about, hi, dear? <laughs> What's up, boo? It's us at PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a brand pivot for sure if they were to talk Right? About a little too intimate. So we warn our listeners about little scams that are always happening so that they don't get scammed. And then we also get letters from them about times that they ran scams or scams that got run on them that we can warn people about as well. Uh, there, there was one that I really thought was helpful to people, which was a guy at a uh, drive through at Dunkin' Donuts who was switching out people's cards when they paid. So you, if you had a Red Bank of America, he would give you back a Red Bank of America. And if you didn't think to check your card, wow. he just took your card. So it's like, now I hope my listeners are like going through the drive-thru and they're at Chick-fil-A. They're like looking to make sure it's their name when they get the card back. Like little stuff like that. Yeah, this is a public service. Yeah, but also we have fun. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. No, but I like that. And I like too that you can, as a listener, side with the victim or the scammer, depending on whatever the case is (laughs) and how likely it is. I like that. That malleability and that versatility, just like your voice. Yes. Yes. yes, and I like your voice so much, and I'm really happy you talked with me today. Oh, I love yours too, Kevin. This oh, was thanks, wonderful. Buddy. I know this really picked me up today, tr- truly. Same. To be honest. <laughs> Lacey Mosley has a chameleon voice, and you can hear that voice on Scam Goddess wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Voices is produced by me and Steve Allman. Our theme music is by Pam Atori. And I'm your host, Kevin T. Porter. Thanks for spending time with us today on Inside Voices. And please, at least for now, stay inside. That was a HeadGum Podcast.